Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's Monday, September 18th. I'll repeat the mantra that I repeat probably about every day. Holy shit, it's almost October. (laughs) I don't get how that works. But anyways, late episode tonight. Well, not late. It's like 7 o'clock, but later than I usually intend to put this out. But kind of running on fumes today. I slept just horrific last night. You know, all honesty, I had, I think I woke up at like 2 a.m., then I fell back asleep finally at 3 a.m., and I had one of the most troubling dreams of my life. I won't get into the specifics of it, but it's a dream that lasted probably 30 minutes of my sleep, and when I finally got up to my alarm clock, it was haunting me, and it was something that just was very relevant to my life. It kind of threatened a lot of things I hold true in my own head, identity, existential-wise. And it really made me just kind of go on this existential thought pattern today about how I I need to simplify my life story into one page. You know, a lot of us have different pages of a book that we present to different people. And I decided I I need to really work on trying to just streamline my life story, my values, who I am, into one page. Kind of like a one-page CV, but a CV for my philosophical and just ethical and moral life. So, yes, very troubling nightmare. I don't know why I called it a dream. Definitely a nightmare. But I've kind of didn't sleep well, and after that, I've just kind of been in my head all day today. Packers lost yesterday. Not too happy about that. We have an F-35 missing. Well, they found the wreckage now, but lots of conspiracies about that. I'm probably going to cover that tomorrow. I don't have the energy to talk about that right now. But from everyone I have talked to that has experience in this and just from articles I've read, it's not a conspiracy. It sounds like it just kind of happened. And yeah, the military did kind of lose a... (laughs) an aircraft, which is not a good look, but I just am kind of exhausted of all the conspiracies that people have right off the bat. But anyways, I want to mainly talk about American exceptionalism today and kind of the double-edged sword of American exceptionalism. I want to talk about America's dueling identity as an authoritarian state and a democratic state. And then I also want to go through Trump's lovely... (laughs) troubling press conference that he, not press conference, sorry, um, interview he did on Meet the Press yesterday. I watched the whole thing, half of it last night, about half today while I was working, and I wonder why these people keep doing interviews with him. They always end up losing. But anyways, first, it's really been interesting. Over the last week or so, Ukraine keeps removing defense ministers, and it seems like this has been an effort to basically reshape the defense ministry, and this is all because there actually has been true, tested, blatant corruption, and I think this is good news. I think this is good news that Zelensky and his government are kicking out defense ministers as they try to reform and reshape the defense ministry, because we have to remember that the horseshoe politicians, the far left and the far right, who think we can solve Ukraine through diplomacy, who seem to not understand what Putin wants to do, 
who have in some ways bought into his propaganda or the right-wing and left-wing propaganda in the United States, time and time again the argument is, why are we helping Ukraine? It's a corrupt country. I've talked about this time and time again on the podcast. Yes, it's a corrupt country, but it doesn't mean that they have the moral that they don't have the moral high ground right now. And they do have the moral high ground right now. And I think it's good that they're out in the open exposing the corruption, kicking people out of the government and trying to fix it. I would rather them do this than try to keep the corrupt figures in play and keep covering this up and then just keep fueling whatever's going on in Western media and in the Tucker Carlson media, the Donald Trump media, etc. So I think it's good. Ukraine is not a perfect country. I think most people that have any nuance are aware of that. There's a lot of questions where some of the military aid is going, no doubt about it. So I think it's good that they're getting to the root of it. Also, I guess staying on the Ukrainian front for a minute. Um, According to The Economist in quotes here, a Ukrainian spokesperson said that the country's forces had recaptured two villages south south of Bakhmut which obviously Bakhmut, part of Ukraine, but it's a Russian-occupied town, probably one of the bloodiest places so far in this war. That was where the Wagner prison forces were out on the front line. Zelensky probably, in my opinion, put too many troops onto this fight. Reports of mass graves, shovels being used as weapons sounded awful. But this is good news because Ukraine appears to be capturing villages near Bakhmut, as the Ukrainian counteroffensive has kind of been a shit show, right? Going into the spring and summer, we kept hearing about, oh, the counteroffensive, it's going to be great. Clearly did not happen. So it's good news to hear that Zelensky has said that his troops were making gains step by step. He's also coming to D.C. Risky trip. I know it's symbolic. I somewhat respect him for doing it, but at the same time, I'm never really one for the symbolism. I never really cared when Trump went to East Palestine after the train derailment. I don't know if Zelensky particularly needs to come to the U.S., but he thinks that it's necessary to sway Congress, sway the American people to keep helping fund this war effort. So I get it. Benjamin Netanyahu did it when Obama was president. He sidestepped the entire process, went behind Obama's back and did it. So It's common in the United States for a foreign leader to come in a time of need or a time of political division and speak to Congress to get help. So, again, we're doing that. Again, as you guys know, I'm very mixed on Zelensky. I think he was the right man for this at the beginning. I do question some of his tactics, some of his anti-free speech tactics that he's kind of picked up in recent months. But then again, I think he's probably one of the least corrupt leaders Ukraine's seen in a long time, and he probably is the man for the job, even if he's not popular with everybody. So that is good. But pretty much there's constantly good and bad news happening simultaneously, which I think is just a side effect of a conflict like this. So we'll have to keep following it. We'll have to see how Zelensky's trip to D.C. goes I can already see people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson coming out and saying, oh, he's not wearing a suit. He's disrespecting the United States. Yeah, (laughs) I can already just see the stupid and pointless attacks, but what can you do? You just move forward. 
So anyways, I want to talk about American exceptionalism. And the reason why I want to talk about American exceptionalism is I was talking to a few different buddies via text over the weekend. And this all kind of came to fruition when I was reading that Romney piece that is in his upcoming, or the upcoming biography on him, right? And it's about how Romney has this giant poster up that basically shows all these different dynasties and empires and kingdoms and governments throughout history. And it looks at how all of them eventually fell. And it also seems like all of them saw the threat or the rise of a strongman, mobilization of people to back the strongman, etc. And he always talks about how authoritarianism is kind of like a gargoyle that is just gargoyle, sorry, that is just kind of creeping over democracy, waiting to pounce at any moment. And he also talks about how the American experiment, a representative republic, is very unique in history. And I've talked about this before on the podcast. I truly think our system, for all of its faults, for all of the issues we've had, for everything ranging from slavery to Jim Crow to internment camps to Manifest Destiny, there's a lot of darkness in our past. But also this experiment of a constitutional system, one of the oldest lasting ones, we have realized most of our intents. It's just taken a long time. And I think Romney in that piece had rightfully recognized that this American experiment, you know, is unique. And maybe a lot of us take it for granted. And so this got me into kind of a deep, again, existential thought pattern into does American exceptionalism help us or hurt us? And the reason I say that is it seems like some of us aren't worried about the lurking threat of Trumpism, fascism, authoritarianism, because we think the American experiment is immune to history. And what I mean here is that we really struggle to be honest with ourselves sometimes. And I think the most direct and recent example of this is when, not Ron DeSantis directly, but the Florida Board of Education came out with the new curriculum about a month ago for K-12 through schools, and they wanted to talk about how slavery, not great, but, you know, slaves gained some valuable skills through the process. They also talked about how the word slave came from the word Slav, which came from what, you know, Eastern Europe. They talked about how slavery was common throughout the world. I think people picked up too much on the slaves gained some skills, even though it was bad rhetoric. And they missed the other parts of the curriculum that were trying to retcon slavery and say, well, everyone did it and the United States was welcoming. Slave isn't even an English word. It was Slav, which is a Slavic word, blah, 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 blah. And that was what I picked up on it, is that American exceptionalism has us kind of trying to blind ourselves to dark parts of our history. And I think when you do blind yourself to the darker parts of your past, you sometimes develop really problematic blind spots that maybe can make it so you don't see the next issue coming. And I guess when you're not particularly willing to face the problems of your history because you think your history is exceptional, 
you're going to be surprised when there's problems. And I think that's why we're seeing a bit of a backlash or a culture war going on in schools. Because you have one side that is basically saying the U.S. was always authoritarian, right? Which I don't totally believe that. But they will argue that American autocracy and American democracy have kind of existed side by side. You know, you could talk about Jim Crow, where white Southern politicians mandated racial separation. The Supreme Court affirmed it. That's not exactly democracy. Then you can talk to how, you know, the last three or four generations of American elites lived with and accepted the existence of this system. You could talk about slavery before it. You can, you can even talk about me being more of a libertarian on these issues. You could talk about eminent domain, what they did to old Chicano neighborhoods in Los Angeles, for example, where Dodgers Stadium is currently built. Eminent domain, again, mainly seizing minority land. You do see the state become quite autocratic throughout history in the United States when it deals with the other. And so I think that part of our history, some people would say, shows that American exceptionalism does not exist particularly. And this country has always had kind of an autocratic, authoritarian backbone, or at least some sort of oligarchic background, you know, backbone to it. And then the other side would not even want to talk about this. And I think that's where you see the reaction in schools, where you have the Prager U saying, oh, Columbus was actually good for Native people, that type of bullshit, is because there's an exceptionalism that doesn't really want to acknowledge that maybe America did have some things wrong. And, and I think two things can be true at once. And I do personally believe that we have a lot of problems in our history. And I would, if I ever have kids, which that's always up in the air, but if I ever had kids, I would personally want them to know and learn about the truth. Because only the truth really sets you free here. And I think that is part of the reason why, again, we are in a moment of kind of existential democratic backsliding. And a lot of people think it can't happen here. Because we, we think that this country is exceptionally better than others and it can't happen here. But then we also don't teach the history about how it has happened here before. And... I always think about Will Salatin's great mini book. It's like 100 pages, so it's either a really long article or a short book. But Will Salatin wrote The Corruption of Lindsey Graham. And I think Lindsey Graham feeds into this American exceptionalism, the negative American exceptionalism, because Lindsey Graham, one of the reasons why he eventually was willing to embrace and accept Trump and kind of deny the problems of Trump was that he said... The American people have spoken, they voted for Trump, and the system, the democratically elected system, has brought him into power, and we can't go against the people. His view is that the system we have always works perfectly, and it can never go wrong. It's the view that our system is too good to see a bad person come through the ranks. The thing that Lindsey Graham doesn't understand, and I think a lot of the MAGA people don't understand, is that some of the worst dictators, autocrats, fascists, they come through elections. It's arguably easier to maintain legitimate power if you do it through elections and then become a dictator. Hitler, even Viktor Orban right now, two, two great examples of leaders that had a lot of longevity. Obviously, Hitler... <laughs> 
his longevity not so great for obvious reasons, you know, starting a world war and then it all implodes. But, you know, Viktor Orban has a lot of ideas about seizing the electoral system, seizing the, uh, sorry, seizing the Supreme Courts, and it's easier for him to do that if he's first elected. And so there's a, there's a really naive nature to Lindsey Graham's comments when he says, the people voted for Trump. We can't go against the people. Of course, he's right in theory, but he's so naive to think that, well, our system holds up, elections hold up, and that means we're all good. Everything's hunky-dory. Just to play out a thought experiment elaborating on that a little bit, let's say January 6th was successful for Trump. Mike Pence is dead they are able to at least cause enough confusion that Trump's alternative electors can throw chaos into the system and then he tries to use martial law to seize power. Something like that. I actually think it would be a lot harder for the Lindsey Grahams to actually then defend Trump because they could blatantly say, no, this is a coup. He did this violently and seized power and is anti-democratic. The problem is, is that if you have a guy lose the popular vote, win the electoral college, and then get into power and talk about retribution, it's easier for the people that are kind of ignorant and or maybe willfully ignorant to then just defend him because democracy worked. I think the problem is, is that Trump is almost like holding a mirror to ourselves in terms of how we deal with our own exceptionalism and our own shame of our past. And all of that comes to fruition in how we have handled basically his time in office and then the next time, and hopefully not another time. And, I mean, I will note that at least involving 2020 and the dozens of court cases trying to overturn Biden's victory, all of them got shut down. Our system has remained fairly resilient. I don't know if a lot of other countries would have had a system that could have like maintained that resiliency in a lot of ways. But again, I think that again is where our hubris and our arrogance now is going to kick in and we're going to say, see, it worked last time. We don't need to create any more guardrails for next time. And this is something I, I talked about two years ago. I'm talking about it now. Again, nothing has fucking changed. They're not dealing with the problems of the last election and making sure they don't happen again. That is American exceptionalism right there. We stopped the, you know, we stopped the enemy at the gate once. The courts held up Biden once. Mike Pence certified the election even though they wanted to hang him once. So don't worry guys, it'll happen again. That's arrogance. That's American exceptionalism. That is a hubristic nature that I do not like. And I guess the New York Times probably says it best. I just want to read a little section of here. It says here in quote, this is a 2022 article, a little old, but it kind of talks about what I am talking about, about how if you're a certain part of the American experiment, black, brown, Latino, Native American, you've always thought the American system has some autocracy in it. But then it also talks about how if you're part of the elite, white, Anglo-Saxon, whatever it may be, America you think this system is free and fair. And it talks about just that dualism that exists in American democracy. And I'm going to read just a few lines here. So it says here in quotes, I think that the great degree to which authoritarianism is tied up in the American experience and the extent to which we've been trained not to see it 
in accordance with our own nation's myths and sense of exceptionalism, makes it difficult for many Americans to really believe that democracy as we know it could be in serious danger. In other words, too many Americans still think it can't happen here, when the truth is that it already has and may well again. Now, I would diverge from this piece a little bit and step back and say, I don't know if we've had a Trump that has gotten this far. There have been Trumps throughout American history, no doubt about it. But I don't know if we've ever had a Trump-like figure reach the highest office in the United States. That is something different, but I think we're learning day in and day out that our institutions are holding up, but I don't really want to see if we have a really close election in 2024, what happens then. And I, I think that's why it is important. Again, I really bounce back and forth on this one. I think there's a conversation to be had about whether middle schools, elementary schools, and even high schools should be really getting into gender theory. I've never been particularly supportive of drag story hour in public libraries. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to ban it. I'm not like authoritarian when it comes to it. But I do think that there's criticism to be had about what we're teaching our kids and the type of situations. Like, should parents maybe be having those conversations with their kids? Should a teacher be having conversations with their kids? It's complicated. I also think gay rights and trans rights have kind of been coupled up in the Florida war on everything. Gay rights and trans rights, I think, are significantly different, and they should be treated so. Uh, I, I just think, I mean, I also think, though, at the same time that the trans community specifically has been targeted more than other groups, especially in conservative states. And so I can understand why people are on the defensive, but it's hard to actually have rational conversations when I think the right has gotten so just toxic in terms of how to deal with people that are marginalized and not even safe in their own communities. And that's made the left and a lot of gay and trans activists kind of go on defensive in a lot of ways. There are so many things we could do to teach society about our past, to provide protections for groups that have been marginalized, but at the same time recognize that, no, there is insanity out there and this country is good. But right now I think we have a lot of people on the culture right thinking that you know the left is trying to just make America look bad. And you have people on the left saying, oh, America's evil. And unfortunately, that dichotomy makes it toxic to the point where we, we can't actually have important and necessary conversations about a very big menace, which is Trump's campaign of retribution, especially if he gets back to the White House. And again, maybe we can't have nice things. Maybe this is what we deserve. But I don't want to think that negatively yet. And I, I would like to think there's still a chance to try to find some reconciliation here and to recognize that this is a, in some ways, exceptional country. And also, I am not naive to the fact that exceptionalism, national pride, patriotism exist in a myriad of countries. It's very common in a lot of countries, a sense of national pride. I think the difference is, is that the United States has been such a large and influential actor on such a national scale 
and our population is so internally divided on how we view our influence internationally. That's what's made our American exceptionalism and our national pride become kind of this inward trend towards toxic politics. And I, I guess the last things I'll say on this before we move on to Trump's interview is that I do think that our exceptionalism has made us think we're immune to history. And here's just a few examples of how stupid we've got when we don't understand that there's bigger issues. Like Tom Nichols writes in The Atlantic today, the United States of America is facing a threat from a sometimes violent cult while a nuclear-armed power wages war on the border of our closest allies. And yet many Americans sleepwalk as if they are living in normal times instead of in an ongoing crisis. He then continues, Tommy Tuberville of, Al of Alabama has been holding up hundreds of military promotions for months, endangering the national security of the United States. The acting chief of naval operations says it will take years for the Navy to recover from the damage. By the way, Tom Nichols, who wrote this article, professor at the Naval War College, Russia expert, neocon who's kind of gone centrist, never Trumper, he knows what he's talking about. He also writes here in quotes, Meanwhile, the House of Representatives is going to open an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. Why? Well, why not? Speaker Kevin McCarthy promised the extremists in his party that, if they made him speaker, he would do what he was told. Then he says Democrats and their liberal allies claim to be in full mobilization mode to stop Trump and defang his threat to the constitutional order. But are they? How much more hand-wringing will they go over Biden's age? over whether he's doing enough for climate change, or to forgive student loans, which he's not, by the way. Do we really need Biden to visit the UAW picket lines, as some have, as some have suggested? How many more times will Trump's opponents in the pro-democracy coalition internalize the right's criticisms about inflation, about spending, about gasoline, and respond to them as if Republicans care one whit about policy? The last thing I'll say, he writes at the end, yes, gas is expensive, so is food. These are real issues, and people deserve to hear how their government will assist them. The solution to these problems, however, is not to normalize an authoritarian and thus pretend that one party, dysfunctional as it can be, is the same as a reactionary, anti-constitutional, and sometimes violent movement. And that's where we're at. Speaking of that, <laughs> so Chuck, Co uh, Chuck Cod, Chuck Todd, sorry, I'm tired. Chuck Todd resigned, retired, whatever you want to say, from Meet the Press back in June, and Kristen Welker, who I do actually quite enjoy sometimes, took the job, and now she is Meet the Press, and she sat down with Donald Trump for a pre-recorded interview at his golf club in New Jersey, I believe it was, Bedminster, whatever it's called, and it was really bad, and I question time and time again why these journalists and these news organizations seem to think that they can be the one to actually have a hard-hitting interview with Donald Trump. Now, I have told friends and colleagues, I've told people outside of work that I would also love to just interview Trump. If I could have anyone on the podcast, it would be Trump. Mainly because I want to just understand what he's like when the, when the camera's not rolling, when we're not recording. But... He's good at just spewing bullshit, right? The, the fire hose of falsehood, where you just throw so much shit at the wall and hope some of it sticks. It's really hard as a journalistic entity to keep up with that. And the LA Times has a really good article, and it is called The Sad Failure of Kristen Welker. And 
I think it's pretty damn damning, <laughs> I guess, but it's also very accurate. It writes here at the beginning, NBC News went ahead and subjected its hopelessly unprepared journalists to ritual humiliation. It was a milepost in the deterioration of network news' ability and inclination to hold politicians to account. What Trump received was a nearly hour-long, essentially unmoderated publicity platform, gratis, an opportunity to once again show that he is a feral exploiter of television's tendency to take everyone at their own level of self-esteem. And I'm going to go into a few clips, but I, I watched the whole thing. I subjected myself to it. I learned, by the way, nothing from it. I did find that Welker just wasn't prepared. It was much, it was much like Caitlin Collins when she held that CNN town hall with Trump. It really doesn't matter if you're a good journalist, so, I, so I'm not attacking Welker. I'm not attacking Caitlin Collins here. It doesn't matter if you're a good journalist because, see, I think an integrity-based journalist is just not going to be able to respond to Trump because he speaks in conspiracies and bullshit, and he just throws stuff out there, and he speaks, and he interrupts, and he just keeps going, and he just says so many falsehoods that you have to kind of pick and choose the ones you're going to correct and the ones that you're just going to kind of bite your tongue on. And that's what I saw mainly in this interview. And I haven't really seen a journalist be able to overcome Trump's attack or assault or whatever you want to call it on the one-on-one -on -one interview because he always seems to win it. <coughs> excuse me. Whether it's <coughs> excuse me, whether it's a town hall, an interview like this, whatever it may be, he always seems to do well. I think the closest person to doing it was Jonathan Swan, who was then of Axios. I'm not sure where he is now, but he did this in 2020 on HBO on the old podcast, The Tonic Accord. It's still out there. I actually broke down that whole interview. Jonathan Swan pissed off Trump. He actually came with papers and receipts and kind of pushed back on Trump. And I think the thing here is that Jonathan Swan is Australian, but he grew up in kind of that UK-Australian combative media infrastructure where you don't give the other person the time sometimes. You're combative, you push back. I think Piers Morgan, some people will always criticize Piers Morgan, but I think he's also good at doing this. Like he doesn't, he basically doesn't give an F, and it really shows. And other than Jonathan Swan, I have not seen a left of center or center based journalist ever really come close. And that's why I don't think it's doing a public service to have Trump in these interviews. Now, I am torn because he is the front runner and the presumptive Republican nominee. So there comes a question of democracy again. You kind of have to interview the front runner, right? It's a big moral and democratic conundrum in a sense. Is like you have to interview the guy who's probably going to be the nominee for the party. But then again, you have to prepare. And I don't know how you prepare. Because, you know, to be fair, if I was sitting down with Trump and had an hour on, and it's going to air on live TV and he's spewing all this stuff, I don't know how well I would do. So I give Welker total, total sympathy towards it. But then again, I don't know if I would want to do that on Meet the Press. And the LA Times article, back to that for a second, I think it, it brings up a good point. It writes here in quotes, in her interview... Welker seemed fed on the, American, uh, uh, on the American tradition of treating every politician, 
even those complicit in an attempt to overturn the democratic tradition with the utmost in politesse. Consequently, Trump stomped her flat. She failed to fact check Trump on abortion and other things. And and I'll, I'll get to some of this in a minute with a few clips, but he said so many false things and she just wasn't ready to fight back. Basically, <laughs> he said that, like she asked him on abortion, he turned and just attacked Ron DeSantis. But he was saying that all Democrats support late-term abortions, when in reality, like 60 to 70% of the American people support abortion within the first trimester, a little bit after. But most Americans do not support late-term abortions, and late-term abortions are more of a hypothetical than an actual tried-and-true thing unless there's emergency needs or medical procedures or the threat to the mother involved. But Trump made it sound like all Democrats and Democrat politicians support very late-term abortions, even close to birth. And that's just not true. But he was saying so many things that she was almost like trying to be the babysitter instead of the interviewer. And he also said that Brad Raffensperger, you know, the one with the perfect phone call, give me 11,000 votes. Or sorry, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. That phone call. And he said during the interview that (laughs) he did nothing wrong, of course. It was a perfect phone call. But he also lied and said Raffensperger said it was a negotiation. (laughs) That is totally a lie. Raffensperger to this day has not said that Trump did not do anything wrong. Raffensperger has been very outspoken about how this was definitely not legal and this was a threat in a sense, and something completely unprecedented for a president. But Trump made it sound like, oh, I've talked to Raffensperger. This was a perfect phone call. He's even called me and said it, blah, blah, blah. Later in the interview, Welker also just doesn't ask the right question. She asked Trump, would you think about running for a third term? Do you know what I would have asked him? Bro, you won in 2016. You lost in 2020. You tried to overturn the 2020 election. If you're reelected, would you try to overturn another election? That's what I would have asked him. Instead, she asked, would you try to run for a third term? The Constitution just does not, as of this moment, allow that. There's a, a glorious, in the words of Trump, a glorious amendment called the 22nd Amendment that says no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term shall be elected to the office of the president more than once. She could mention that, but she asked, would you try to run for a third term? That's not how Trump would do it, guys. We know how he, we know what he does. It's alternative slate of electors, falsehoods, riling up the base, etc. And I just thought it was a stupid question on her behalf. And In a sense, that to me summed up the majority of this entire interview was she just wasn't ready. And again, I think Kristen Welker's done some great segments on Meet the Press. I think she's great. She's moderated some debates. This is no personal attack on her completely, I guess. But I also think she needed to do more homework if she was going to go head to head with Donald Trump. And part of me does wonder, was this an MSNBC decision, an NBC News decision? I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it just seemed a little bit too early and a little bit too abrupt. And I don't know really anyone on the left or the never Trump right that was happy with this interview. And of course, we also know that I don't think many MAGA Trump supporting Republicans watched this either. So I just don't understand what the strength of this was. Anyways, I can rip this apart all day, believe me. 
But I actually want to get into what I think was a very interesting summarization of Trump's entire political ideology. So Welker gets into abortion and whether it should be dealt with on the federal or the state level and how Trump as president would deal with it. And it's really interesting because I actually, as you guys know, I don't like to defend Trump and I'm not really defending him here, but to me it seems like he at least has the political intelligence to know he doesn't want to be like Ron DeSantis. He also doesn't want to flip-flop like Mike Pence. And to me, it does show that he doesn't particularly care about this issue. To him, this issue is more what the people want. And this is like, I think, his populist instincts. So I'm going to play this. He starts by attacking Ron DeSantis and the six-week ban being stupid. Then he puts out the falsehoods about Democrats wanting even like post-birth abortions, which, I, I mean, doesn't even make sense. But then he gets into like how he doesn't really care if it's state or federal. It's the weak count. And in a sense, I don't disagree with him. And it shows that abortion's an issue that I think he's willing to be kind of slimy and all over the place on, which if he was, if he had a moral compass, I think would be a good thing. But because he doesn't, it could be a bad thing. But it's an interesting clip. It's kind of long. I break it up into a few parts and have some thoughts. So let's give it a listen. We're reelected. Would you sign it at 15? Are you weeks? talking about a complete ban? A ban at 15 weeks. Well, people, people are starting to think of 15 weeks. That seems to be a number that people are talking about right now. Would you sign that? Uh, uh, I, would, I would sit down with both sides and I'd negotiate something and we'll end up with peace on that issue for the first time in 52 <laughs> years. Uh, I'm not going to say I would or I wouldn't. I, uh, again, this is Trump's vagueness. There's no way there would be peace on this issue. He gives no specifics, but he th seems to think he's just going to bring everyone together and it's going to be hunky-dory. Sorry, I digress. I mean, DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I goes think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. But we'll come up with a number. But at the same time, Democrats won't be able to go out in six months, seven months, eight months and allow an abortion. And, Kristen, you have to look at this because you said no. You have some states that are allowed to kill the child after birth, and you can't allow that. But, Mr. President, again, no one is calling for a child to be killed after birth. No one's calling for that. But you to have be legislation. But let me just ask Kristen, you. Kristen, you have legislation in certain states where it's allowed. Mr. President. The governor of Virginia, previous governor, who was Previous a whack governor. job. I call him the Michael Jackson governor. No one's talking that about governor, part of their platform. I want to know what me, you That governor do. said you can kill the baby after birth. But Mr. President, this is about what you would do if you were reelected. As you know, you upset we Samantha. We will agree to a number me... of weeks which will be where both sides will be happy. We have to bring... Again, no, no specifics. No specifics, just a number we'll both agree on. We know Trump doesn't always agree with Democrats country together on this issue. Mr. President, when you talk about negotiating, I think a lot of people think to themselves, this is an issue that they care about I deeply care about in too. their hearts. Oh, I care about they know too. where they stand and they want to know where you stand. As you know, some anti-abortion groups are really looking for some clarity from you. So let me just ask you to put a fine point on this. Should the federal government impose any abortion restrictions or should it be completely left up to the states? No, I don't think you should have, I don't think you should be allowed to have abor abortions well into a pregnancy. But what about the question we're I going just to asked agree, you? No, we're going to agree to a number of weeks or months or however you want to define it. And both sides are going to come together. And both sides, both sides, and this is a big statement, both sides will come together. Huge statement. 
for the first time in 52 years, you'll have an issue that we can put behind us. At the federal level? Uh, it could be state or it could be federal. I don't frankly care. So you're not committed to a ban at the I federal I will say level. this. Everybody, uh, including the great legal scholars, love the idea of Roe v. Wade terminated so it be brought back to the states. It sounds right? like that's what you think, too, that well, it should I, remain I would, a state issue. I would say this. From a pure standpoint, from a legal standpoint, I think it's probably better. But I can live with it either way. It's much more important. The number of weeks is much more important. But something will happen with the number of weeks, the amount of time, after which you can't do it. And you know what? The, the, most, uh, the most powerful people that are anti-abortion are okay with that now. And you know what? They weren't okay with that even a year ago. Your former Vice President Mike Pence believes that a fetus should have constitutional rights. Do you believe that, Mr. Well, President? Well, Mike Pence said something about 15 weeks, too, which was a big change for Mike Pence because Mike Pence had no exceptions. I have exceptions, by the way. Kind of a fire rebuttal, honestly. I think people should have exceptions. I think if it's rape or incest or the life of the mother, I think you have to have exceptions. Does the fetus have important. constitutional rights? And, Mr. and a lot of people, when they don't have exceptions. Now, I will tell you that I think most people, most Republicans, are willing. Uh, you go life of the mother, mm-hmm. rape, incest. I think most of them are, are there. But should a fetus a have statement. constitutional rights, Mr. President? Well, just- I and I'm going to cut it off there because there's a lot of just ranting after that. But to me, this entire clip kind of highlights Trump's inconsistencies, but also his, I guess, his ability to read the room because he does recognize that Mike Pence flip flops. He recognizes that the five or six week ban is not popular. And Ron DeSantis or DeSanctis, I love he still calls him that. He understands that's stupid. And then he also kind of calls out the left on wanting too late of abortions and weirdly like he kind of seems to be he's not articulate at it but he does seem to kind of be highlighting something like a 15 week ban which you guys know 15 to 20 weeks is kind of where I where I personally would support legislation but then again he doesn't like my issue with him is that he creates such a gray area and there's so much vagueness where he says I don't really care if it's state federal localities he talks about the legal scholars all want roe overturned the problem with his vagueness is that it also shows me that he wouldn't really care about going one way or the other if he actually had a bit more of a backbone and just said like 15 weeks we're gonna do it but (coughs) excuse me but i think i think the bigger conundrum that he has is that he is trying to appeal to the people that agree with ron DeSantis and mike pence but he's also trying to appeal to the so-called only MAGA voters, the people that only go out to vote for him, and some of them are not really charged on abortion. So to me, this one actually is a really good telling clip of Trump's kind of conundrum inside of the GOP. Like he is the one that helped get Roe overturned, obviously by electing judges. Mitch McConnell helped by not allowing Merrick Garland, obviously back in 2016, to get into the Supreme Court, all this stuff. But now that Trump has actually done what he said he was going to do, He seems a bit torn on what is next. And I think that's really interesting and really telling. But then again, he actually sounds like a career politician where he can't give a direct answer. And I would think all of his time in office and his ability to kind of be a straight shooter, whether you like it or not, you would think he could get a little bit more of a coherent answer here. Before we're out of here, I also just want to show one more time where I think Welker does do a good job of showing his kind of back and forth 
conundrum he has about Nikki Haley, actually, where she criticizes him, but in the past she's liked him. And it shows to me why I think there's a little bit of Trump for a myriad of different groups. And here she brings up how she's blamed Trump's policies, actually, for deficits. And then Trump goes into just a word salad. I think it's kind of interesting. Over the world, I mean, frankly, uh, it was a disaster. What China did to the world with COVID is something that we're going to get to the bottom of, and they have to pay something back. You know, nobody can pay back the cost of all those lives and all the money that was lost, but nobody can pay back the lives and all of the damage it was caused, but including Nikki China. Haley's but you know what? They have, to, they have to pay something back. To Nikki they Haley's have to do something. What do you say to her? What does Nikki Haley know? I mean, I know Nikki Haley very well. She said, I'm the greatest president. She, she left, she said, I'm the greatest president. Now she's running for office and she says something. Look, Look, Nikki Haley doesn't know anything about it. She's a politician. She knows nothing about it. Very nice woman. Well, some people like that. I, I, I have to pause and just say that the one thing that irritates me here is him saying she doesn't know anything because she's a politician. Trump is just priming the pump to basically have constituents think that just because you're a politician, you don't know anything. I may disagree with Nikki Haley on a lot of things, and I think she's too late to go in against Trump. But she knows a lot of things, and you can't just tell the people she knows nothing because she's a politician. Anyways, I digress again. Would say, but she left office. She said very strongly, I will never run. He was a great president. And then in some cases, said the greatest president in my lifetime. In one case, said the pres- greatest president ever. Now she's running. Uh, Nikki Haley has nothing to do with this. We will, we were going to make a fortune off our energy. We were going to send the energy to Europe. Europe was going to pay us tremendous amounts of money. And I'll tell you, you would have never had the Ukraine monster at all. It would have never happened. Russia would have never got just by sheer force of personality. But beyond personality, Mm -hmm. what happened is when oil hit $100 a barrel, and, and by the way, it's right there right now again, Putin makes a fortune on this war. You know, everybody said, oh, he can't afford it. If Biden allowed my policies to stay in place, oil would right now be at $40. Interestingly, a lot of the protectionist policies Trump put in place actually are still going on. But anyways. Barrel and Putin wouldn't be able to afford them. We war. are going to get to the war in Ukraine. But first, I do want to talk about the issue of abortion. Anyways, um, I, I just found that interesting because... Trump really has internalized that the economy and everything he did was great and any criticism against him is wrong. And he has the talking points down. I'll give him credit for that. But other than the talking points, I don't know if there is too much there. And also we do need to remember that a lot of the actually Biden-esque policies involving China and now bringing more EV environmental laws back to the United States has actually isolated us from a lot of the EU. So I don't know if he's accurate there, but it's just interesting where in one line he says Nikki Haley loves me and she defended me, but then again she knows nothing. Like, there's a lot of contradictions in that. And I I find Trump to just be a man of contradictions. But I will say during this interview, he's a lot more calm and regulated than before. And that's why I don't know why these organizations keep doing it. I recommend people watch the entire thing. I, I just don't have the time or energy to go through much more of it. But... It was it was very it's very interesting. It's very interesting. 
part of me is kind of glad that they did this because I could actually watch it and again hear Trump say these things and hear him try to defend himself because this is what a debate would be like if him and Joe Biden actually debate, which I don't even know is going to happen or not. But anyways, it's a unique time. I'm going to end the podcast on that. Uh, You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. I'm out of here. Adios. Adios.